up, Internet? You're tuned into episode 123 of the Potscast. I'm your host, Pete and Bessie, joined, as always, by my very good friend, Mr. Stephen Radford. Hello. Hello, Steve. Welcome back. It is, you know, we said it last week, the video game industry has come alive. And this week, it is stacked again. So much so that there were like, fuck, five, five news stories that otherwise would have made the cut. Gone. Gone. Just the cream of the crop this week, all right? We are talking about, of course, the new Pokemon Snap, which I am several hours into, and we're going to talk all about it. Uh, We got some questions from you guys. Excited to talk about it. We've got some thoughts, or I'm sorry, not some thoughts, some news about what is next for the team behind Hitman, uh, aside from, you know, that we know that they're working on that James Bond noise as well. Oh, James Bond uh, but then also uh, some big news on the Microsoft side of things, you know, all the drama going on with Bobby Kotick. Like, it, it's a week. Ratchet and Clank, state of play. And then, of course, our main topic this week is me getting to talk all about Jason Schreier's newest book, Press Reset, uh, all about video game studio closures. Um, we got some questions, and it's it's gonna be a good it's gonna be a good one. I can promise you that. So before we get into all that, let me tell you where you can find us all across the web. We are of course the Potscast, Lootpots.com's weekly video game podcast. Where Steve and I get together and talk about what we're playing, what's going on in the world of Nintendo and video games. It's a good time. Y'all write in. You support the show on Patreon, and we all have a good time. If you want to go and support the show, of course, patreon.com slash lootpots, just a buck. You can get access to our patron-exclusive show, After Dark, where this week, Steve and I talked not about what would happen if we got a million dollars, but instead, just about you know, just about our lives and stuff. It was a good one. It was very, very chill. We we, we talked about uh, voxels. We talked about PC versus oh, Mac yeah. a little bit. I forgot about a bunch of stuff. It was a good one. We, yeah. it, was, it ran the gamut. I, you know, I said, I said it on the episode. It's worth a buck. You know, I, this one, probably worth two bucks, but... You can get it for just a dollar and get access to every episode in the past. That's like 80, 90 hours of content that you can go and listen to. Uh, So go check that out. Best way to show your support for the show. Uh, And then, of course, if you want to get some more content from us, twitch.tv slash lootpots, where last week we got to stream a little bit of Emily is Away 3, courtesy of one Kyle Seeley, the developer behind the game. Thank you for the code. Uh, Had a great time hanging out with all you guys in the chat. Uh, If you missed it, the archive is still up. You can go check it out. We'll be back this week to stream a little bit of Super Mario Party with friends of ours, Mr. Chewy Plays and Miss Sierra Plus Ultra. It's going to be a good time. So you're going to want to go and check that out. Come hang out with us. Uh, And then, of course, head over to the YouTube channel. Give us a sub. Um, You all know how to internet. If you enjoy the show, share it with some people. Let them know that you're out here and we're doing a show that uh, you like to tune into every week and make a part of your week and see if maybe they'd like to make it a part of theirs. So with that, let's jump directly into what we're playing. Uh, Before we get into the new Pokemon Snap side of things, let's just briefly talk about Emily is Away 3 because I think Snap's going to be a bigger conversation, of course. Um, so as I said, we got to stream Emily is Away 3, uh, on, over on the Twitch channel this week. It was my first time playing the game. Uh, big fan of the original two. If you're not familiar, um, Emily is Away and Emily is Away 2 are like, they're like text-based, uh, choose-your-own-adventure type games and the entire thing takes place on AIM. And, uh, this new one is set in 2000. And if you're, like, born in the 2000s, AIM is AOL Instant Messenger, which was, like, the precursor to Facebook. Like, can you, like, 2004 is when everyone moved to Facebook, so some people don't even know what AIM is. Oh, (laughs) 
I I've I don't know that I've ever felt more old than in that moment because <laughs> you're right that we needed to do that because I'm sh- I know we have listeners who are too young to have experienced aim. Dan has probably never experienced aim, and God, that makes me feel a hundred years old. I I it, it reminds me of that John Mulaney bit where he's making fun of his grandmother for talking about like soda jerks and stuff. <laughs> like that's what we just did. That's the moment we just found ourselves in. Oh, God. Anyway, so the new one uh, takes place on Facebook, which is, I'm sure, something that you have heard of because uh, it's in 2008. So it's, it's you know, if, if you like uh, the choose your own adventure style game where you get to make dialogue choices and advance the story and have different outcomes based on your decision, uh, this is a really great, unique series. Yeah. And it's and one that I've been in like a poke war. You can see all the drama on other people's yeah. Facebook wars. You get to decide which events you're going to. It's good it's, stuff. It's really fun. Um, yeah, I, I really, really do love this series. I think what Kyle's done with it is, is really special. And I think the writing is really good. Um, and it, it's a series I've, I've definitely been a champion of uh, since it started. And I'm, I'm stoked to see that it's still going and that it's like, you know, growing and, this is like the longest, biggest one yet. So um, if any of that sounds like it's up your alley, definitely go check it out. If you want to get a taste of what it looks like, again, you can go head over to twitch.tv uh, slash lootpots and check out the archive that's still available, and you can kind of get a taste of it yourself. Um, I'll definitely be playing more of it. Um, I don't know if we'll stream the rest of it. If you guys want us to, let us know. I'd be happy to keep keep going when we finish the first chapter. Um, but I'm um, I'm super excited to uh, to play more of it and um, to give it some more of my time because I love Emily as a way. Um, so yeah, thanks again, Kyle, for the code. Really appreciate it. Um, it, w- it was super cool for you to uh, shoot us that opportunity. So thank you, um, and I hope you guys will uh, will check it out. So new Pokemon Snap, new Pokemon Snap drop this. Never week. heard of it. Never heard of it. So Pokemon Snap uh, for all of you pre aim kids was an N64 game. Uh, where you took pictures of Pokemon. And now new Pokemon Snap is a new game in the Pokemon Snap franchise where you take pictures of Pokemon on the Nintendo Switch. And um, I got to say, man, I am I am loving it. I'm having such a good time with it. I'm uh, very pleased to hear that. Yeah, and we, we talked about it uh, this week on uh, Directly to You, which is the Fanatics 4 podcast. If you're not familiar, uh, Parker and AJ, good friends of ours. Um, we love those guys. We were able to go and guest on that show this week because... Uh, Parker was indisposed for reasons that um, I'm not sure we're allowed to talk about. So, uh, Parker, I know you listen to the show. If you're listening to this one, congratulations, buddy. We love you. Very happy for you. Um, I'm sure everybody else will know about it soon enough. Um, So we we talked about it then, but I had really only played like an hour. Like I got through the tutorial and was futzed around with it a little bit. I'm now like closer to like five, six hours in. So you were at the point that AJ was in. When we we had talked. yeah. Yeah. And now, so I've unlocked six different courses, I think. And then each of them, so, okay. If you've played the original, right, uh, there are a lot of minor innovations in this game that are... I I think we should probably, like, zoom out a little if people haven't ever played these games. And just, like, say, these are essentially, like, imagine House of the Dead, but instead of shooting zombies with a gun... You've got a camera, and you're taking pictures of Pokemon on the rails. Yeah. And in order to find specific Pokemon, you have to like sort of solve puzzles, like throw a different yeah. piece of fruit to lure them out and do stuff like that, right? 
Yeah, right. And there's all these different tools you have at your disposal. Like there's the fruit. There's like a, uh, a they call it like tone or something like this. It's the polka flute. Same thing from the original, but now it's like built into your camera. Um, so there's all these different like tools you can use. But what, what's interesting and different about this game uh, versus the first one, which was that, you know, in that game, your progression was very much tied to what tools you had. So like as you progressed, you would get new tools that you could then go back to previous levels so a bit metroidvania a little bit yeah and you could kind of like you know solve new combinations you could get pokemon to act in ways you hadn't before um but it was all you know these you know there there was a, a more limited number of of scripted events whereas in this what i think is really cool there's a few different things that change so each level has uh what's called a research level and you get points for you know at the end of every run the professor scores all your pictures and all of those points that you accumulate on the photos that you take uh go towards your your overall course level so on level one right uh the pokemon are like maybe a little bit more wary of you some of them will hide some of them will run away from you um you know whatever right and as your research level develops each time you do the runs, the Pokemon start acting in different ways. So like a Pokemon that you saw on the level one research level that as soon as it saw you, it hid and ran away. Now you've been here enough that it's a little more curious about you. So it might it might come up a little bit closer, right? And then like the next level, now it's like, oh, this guy's fine. He's been here like and then like they'll come and start interacting with you a little bit more or, or they'll they'll behave in different ways that you haven't seen before. So like rather than everything being tied to the puzzles and like what items you're using, the the levels are also kind of growing and changing as you continue to progress. That's cool. And every level has both a day and a night version, which is awesome because you see totally different Pokemon. Um, maybe yeah, I not think, totally. I, I think but. AJ said there was like a hoot hoot in the tree. Who I, I said that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, in, yeah. You couldn't you couldn't get it until you got went back in the nighttime because he was asleep, right? Yeah, and like you could see his butt, and you could like get a picture of him asleep in his hole, but like terrible picture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then at night he's out there and he's on the branch and his eyes are all lit up and you can see him from really far away, you know, and like there's little little cool beats like that that are are really neat. Um, and that and that's still the goal then to get the best graded picture from the professor. Yeah. So and it's innovated a little bit. So uh, in the previous game, it was always just like highest scoring picture you can get, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas with this, they have uh, four different grades of stars, and I'm not. I don't totally understand what makes the difference between like a one star, a two star, a three star, and a four star photo because it's not quality. It's like a little bit different than that. The only thing I've noticed is that four star photos are always you catching the Pokemon doing something special. So like, for example, um, there's a Pokemon called Quagsire, right? It's a water type and it's like a it's like a um, like a newt kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a special request that you get from one of the, you know, the NPC characters Who's like, oh, I wanna, I, I wanna see a picture of them like mid dive. Seeing them dive in water is really cool. And if you get that picture, that's a four star picture because it's them doing that special action, right? 
So there's like all these little things that. So there can... are like specific goals that people say, "I want this," and then you have yes. to go and get them to. Oh, and, that's quite cool. They're little side missions. Yes, you don't have to, but yeah, it's like a, basically an in-game achievement system, and it kind of gives you clues about like, oh, like you can get this Pokemon to do this thing, or like this Pokemon, you know, behaves in this way. Try to look out for that. Um, and it's like they're good because they're they're clear hints, but they're not always like the most stupidly obvious thing. Like sometimes it is just like catch a picture of this Quagsire doing this thing. And you just, that gives you the idea. Oh, I should look for that. I should know he's going to do that at some point. Um, but then sometimes it'll be like these cute little mysteries. Like I remember this was when AJ called out where like on the first level you find these um, like fruits that are burned and it's like, Oh, I wonder which Pokemon did this, you know? And like, you like some little environmental storytelling and like puzzling and stuff like that, which is cool. Um, but then for, like I said, the four different grades, right? Each of those, there's a, a score level for each grade that goes from bronze to platinum. So to like get the completionist, like best, you want to get a platinum version of each grading picture. So for, I think there's 200 Pokemon in the game. So ideally, if you want to really fill out your photo decks, you'd want to get, you know what, uh, 800 wow. photos total. And you'd want them all to be that platinum rating. So are you going to be a completionist on this, or are you going to get through the kind of main crux of the game, see all of the Pokemon, and then you think you'll have your money's worth? I don't know. I think I might go the completionist route. Like, I'm really having fun with it, and I know that the main game is, like, roughly about eight hours, I think, to roll credits, and then it's, like, ten, I've heard, to, like, kind of fill up the decks from there. Okay. Um, so, like, with that in mind... I don't know, like, I imagine I'll still want to keep playing at 10 hours, so I could see myself going back and, and trying to maximize everything. But also, I'm already kind of doing that. Like, I'm I'm getting a lot of the platinum pictures already, so the fact that I'll get to the end game and, like, ostensibly have a lot of them already done... Let's just go back and kind of check off the last few boxes to I, say, oh, I haven't got one of Pikachu or whatever. Yeah, or like I don't have the two star of Pikachu as platinum, mm-hmm. but my four star one is, you know, and like I, I think that because it's there's a lot to do, but not like a insane amount to do. I can see myself probably doing that because I'm just I'm loving it, man. Like I I I find the game to be very relaxing. It's super serene. Like it's very chill. The pacing is like nice and slow, and it's like it's you know you're going you want for like a wind down game at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, and, like, the, I lost the hours when I was playing it on Friday night. Like, uh, we we had come off of Directly to You, and I had recorded a podcast right before that and then worked eight hours, so I was, like, beat, and I was ready to just chill and just vibe, and I was just sitting there quiet, like, quiet as a church mouse, just like, oh, this just feels exactly right it's exactly what i wanted it to be like it is in in the same way that uh i i reacted to the tony hawk remake where i'm just like ah this is just what i wanted it to be it's scratching the itch it is nostalgic in all the ways i want it to be nostalgic and modernized and fresh in all the ways it needs to be to feel like it was worth going back to the well you know Mm -hmm. um it's really just striking a chord with me 
Good. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I mean, we do have a question from Brandy on Twitter that's kind of related to, I guess, some of the gameplay time, because I know this has been a bit of a yeah. discussion online. Um, so he said, there's been discussion amongst my friends and I about new Pokemon Snap's price point being potentially too high. What are your thoughts on this? Because to be honest, for me personally, it's too high for me to take a risk at full price. And that makes me worry about the big $70 games on PS5 and Xbox. No, it's too steep for me because I was a literal baby when the original came out. Not trying to throw shade at Nintendo for making games that appeal to a niche. First of all, uh, so Brendy's one of these pre-AIM kids, is what I just learned. We, 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 he might not have knew what AIM was if we didn't explain it. So thank God you did that, Steve. Um, <laughs> Brendy, thank you for writing in. Always great to hear from you. Um, so there's a lot here. Um, first of all, I'd like to say I commend Brendy on pointing out the the niche thing. Nothing wrong with appealing to a niche, and I love to see big companies do it. Um, so that's cool. So with that in mind, um, I am of two minds when it comes to the valuation of new Pokemon Snap. And I was we talked about this on Directly to You. My thoughts are a little more fully formed now. I think, for me, it is worth $60. Because I, I really wanted a, a, a Pokemon Snap sequel. It's something I've been asking for at least since the Wii U. Um, I was one of those people who was like, why aren't they making a Pokemon Snap sequel? Like, you, imagine sitting still in a chair with your Wii U gamepad and flipping oh, like you're yeah. sitting in the you thing. You know it would have been like that. I would have absolutely hated that, like using the gamepad as like a goofy. It's and, like those people that go to events take that ipad and are just so obnoxiously holding it up in front of their face to like take pictures yeah (laughs) and like don't get me wrong that might have been the case but like it was a thing that seemed like a match made in heaven and it was kind of like why aren't you doing this why don't you even have you're not making any other games for this console so why not so for me right when they announced this this was a big moment like i got this got a pop out of me you know i was really excited about the idea of of a pokemon snap successor so I, being somebody who really likes the series and wanted to see it return and wanted to see this thing that is appealing to a niche succeed, I personally was happy to pay $60 for it. However, I also recognize that that argument comes from like an immense place of privilege, right? Like, I have a good job, I have expendable income, I can afford to buy multiple $60 or $70 games a month if I want to. Right. If 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 uh, if Mass Effect was out this month and it was like, I got to do one or the other, like I, I would just do both because I'm I'm financially solvent enough to do that. So with that in mind, you know, I get it. Like uh, if, if somebody were to look me in the eyes and say, ah, sixty dollars for this is too steep. I get that. I understand that. I don't agree. Personally. But I could. Res- I also think it, it kind of depends on how invested you are in the Pokemon franchise. Yes. Like I, I, I mean, I like Pokemon. I loved, say, the Detective Pikachu movie, which we spoke about on directly to you. I loved Let's Go, um, Pikachu and Eevee. But you know, I don't know all of the Pokemon that are in this game. I only know Gen 1, and I don't even really know all of those. For me, I don't think this game 
would have the the kind of staying power as it would for you. I don't think I would continue to play it after I, I finish the main crux of the game. And so I can understand why looking at it, and it's £50 in, in the UK, not 60 uh, So it's not even the same as it is in the, in the US, where this is on the same tier as Breath of the Wild. I just... I would struggle to to justify spending that much money on on this game, which would probably be for me. I know I would spend like three hours with it at most before I I clock off, and I'm just like, oh, I've kind of got my bonus yeah, worth out. I get one. it, and and that's and that's a a position I can totally respect, you know, and, and like and and I think that it's tough because. I think objectively, I would probably argue that it's it doesn't feel like a game that should be sixty dollars. Like, and I say objective about something that's subjective, right? That's ridiculous. So, grain of salt, right? With what I'm saying, but like, this game would feel better if it cost forty dollars. I acknowledge that it would feel better if it cost fifty dollars. And I think when you acknowledge it in the way that, well, this is a a game that's the same price as Breath of the Wild. I mean, it's the same price as the mainline Pokemon game. So if it's a choice between buying this and buying Pokemon Sword or Pokemon Shield, and you only can choose between one of them, you're probably going to pick the mainline Pokemon game. I I feel like this game really is for those diehard Pokemon fans or the people that had the nostalgia for the original game or people that just love this world or want something casual because... You know, I, I've got a, a friend who has, has bought this who didn't buy Pokemon Sword or Pokemon Show because right. they don't play it like you play Pokemon. It is yeah. very much a casual, I like to collect things. And, and like a lot of people are like that. that you know, mm-hmm. and I think there's a, I, I think the same audience that loved Pokemon Go, this is a totally a game for them. Um, so that's the thing is like, I, worth is something that is so tied to your personal feelings and your personal financial situation. So if you're, you know, uh, a, a game, like, and I'm, I'm maybe I'm making an assumption here, Brendy, but like, right, you're a couple years younger than us. When I was your age, I might have felt similarly because I know, like, on the Wii U, there were games I really wanted to play, like Pikmin 3 or mm-hmm. even Super Mario World that I skipped uh, because I had to, because I only had so much money and it was a this game or that game. And I had to make decisions based on, you know, the stuff I was most eager to play, but also the stuff that I thought I was going to get the most investment out of. Right. So like, you know, me making the decision to buy like dragon age inquisition at launch with my PS4. I love dragon age. And it's one of my favorite franchises, but it was also a game I knew I would get over a hundred hours out of. I could play more than once if I wanted to. And you know, when you have a very limited gaming budget, those are the decisions you got. Those are questions you need to ask yourself. So, like, with that in mind, you know, with the example that, like, Steve gave, if somebody came to me and was like, I'm getting a Switch and I I can only get three games, you know, should I get Pokemon Snap or Pokemon Sword? I probably would suggest Pokemon Sword. But I also think that there are several types of gamers who will enjoy this experience a lot more than Pokemon Sword, even though it's a lot shorter. So, you've got to ask yourself what kind of games do you like and like are you willing to put your money where your mouth is for this kind of game because i think there's an argument to be made that maybe this is you know being overvalued because it's the pokemon ip and pokemon is worth 60 dollars a game and that's the argument that's the gamble they're taking right and i think for a lot of people it's like this this game has beat out returnal this week and i get the 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 probably the install base for the switch is higher than the ps5 at the moment because nobody can buy a ps5 but 
it's still beating out every game and it's coming in number one on the charts. Right. And and I think I don't think that that's a hundred percent nostalgia. I think that the game is good and there's a substantial amount of content if what you want out of a video game is a really good, sizable Pokemon Snap sequel. If that's not for you, then I think you will feel burned spending $60 on this. But you'd probably feel the same way if you bought another game in a genre that wasn't for you. You know? So um, there's an argument to be made. So new Pokemon Snap, I'm loving it. Uh, I'll have more to talk about in the weeks to come, for sure. Uh, I Well, I, and I want to see you print in some Pokemon out. We'll do that show. for next week. That's yeah, I, I, I didn't get the camera yet. I'm going to, I think. But I'm going to send you some so you can make some prints and we'll okay. show them off. I already have some picked that I wanted to send you, but I just I didn't okay. get around to doing it. Then I can include those in the, the package I need to send you at some point. Yes, perfect. Awesome. That would be great. <laughs> All right, so uh, thanks again for writing in, Brandy. Uh, let's. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you were playing Hitman Three. I was about to jump into our first news story about Hitman's yeah. developers, so we'll we'll go over Hitman Three and we'll pivot. <laughs> so I spoke about it last week. I bought Hitman, and it finally installed all 65 gigabytes of Hitman. Um, and then you boot it up, and it's so incredible to me that you've got all of the levels, like all of the story from Hitman One all the way up to the end of Hitman 3. It's brilliant. In the new engine, in one menu, it's absolutely fantastic. You can just go in and play it. Every game should do this. Every game that's like a level-based uh, yes. thing where you could do, like, oh my God, it's such a pro-consumer move. And like, mm-hmm. it makes that software, it it keeps it relevant. You know, like, I bet people buy Hitman 1 and 2 with way more frequency than like, other older games in a franchise you know like think about it yeah like you and even if you just buy hitman 3 and then you buy the access pass like the access pass which gives you all of hitman 1 and hitman 2's levels all of the dlc is like 80 pounds so you buy the base game for like 50 i mean i managed to get it for 25 but you you buy that base game and then you have to buy the access pass for like 80 quid like they they can rake in the cash and it's an easy sell because all of those levels, as well as having the story, they have community contracts that go on to them. Like anyone can make their own contract with like win conditions and stuff like that. At the moment, now that Hitman Three is is out, it's like got all the live services back. So you've got the elusive contracts, which are these contracts that you get one attempt at. If you die, you die. You don't get another go, um, and you have to get the best score you can by defeating this this one person the one that's on at the moment is the politician who has a body double so you have to go into the house you have to figure out who the real one is if you kill the wrong one you fail so you have to figure that out by doing you should be allowed to just kill both (laughs) (laughs) and then kill the correct one Um, that's awesome i'm sorry go ahead oh no carry on i was gonna say that reminds me of like one of, of maybe my favorite level in dishonored um, where like you're at a dinner party and there's like these three sisters and they all have outfits that are like the same and like these masks and everything oh, and you okay. need to figure out which one is the one you're trying to kill and it changes every run. It's always one that's of the fun. three of them, but it's never the same one. And yeah, you need to like good. solve the. Mi- it's so fun. I love stuff like that. 
Uh, so I've done some of the other community contracts as well. So uh, Eurogamer's on there at the moment. They've got a bunch of uh, ones they've they've built with their community. Last month was um, kind of funny and Minmax. I missed did, that. Uh, I'm so bummed. Community I those. contracts on that. Um, so there was one where you have to like. Uh, kill these two women with a exploding duck and you can't change your outfit you can't get caught and you can't kill anyone else by mistake uh, which was really good fun to try and lure them into the correct place and kill them with this exploding duck and there's a bunch of things like that but i've also finished the the story of hitman 3 and this the story in this game follows on from hitman 1 and 2 but it kind of takes it in a different direction it very much feels like more of a cohesive story hitman 1 and hitman 2 was each level would have its own story and you would be you know kind of invested but it was very much for me like i think i said when i was playing hitman 2 i didn't give a shit about the story in those games um in hitman 3 i very much was invested every single level it followed the story. Whatever you were doing in that level was related to something that happened in the story. Um, and there's like, uh, the, the level of design in this is so much more creative than any of the other Hitman games. So um, there's one level where there are 11 potential targets, but you don't know who any of them are for a reason that makes sense in the story. And you have to do some sleuthing, follow people around and figure out who the targets are and then take them out. Uh, There's another level where you're um, on a train. So you're on a moving like vehicle for the first time. Which very much reminded me of like the Uncharted Two levels, which was really fun. Yeah, uh, the like the end of Uncharted Two when you're on that train, which is great. Um, and then the the level that really stands out for me was China. It was just phenomenally designed. There's so many different levels, like in terms of like levels of verticality that you can go through. There's so many creative spaces you can go. I think because there's a bunch of these challenges, and one of the challenges is to find all of the locations within the location. Then that level had some like 68 specific locations you had to discover. What? Uh, and you have to discover that in order to complete the challenge. Wow. There's um there's like uh, challenges on every level called Chameleon, where you have to find every outfit and every disguise you could possibly wear and take down the person and, and put their disguise on then there was something like 33 in that level it's insanely large uh and it's very very fun i've had an absolute blast with hitman and you really really need to play these games like if you pick one play hitman 3 because it doesn't really matter if you have you don't know the story from hitman 1 and hitman yeah. 2 i think you'll still have a good time with it and the level design on hitman 3 okay like I, I know i mentioned the the knives out level last time i've done that level now i've done that level three times because there's three mission stories on it and it's really fun to just play each of the stories that are on those levels i really think that it's so funny because these games just never grab me like i played hitman uh with my like best friend as a kid um back on the ps2 and like i always thought it was cool but like it just never really like grabbed me and for some reason um i feel like it's one of those franchises that like I've heard so much good about it. There's so much good buzz and word of mouth and the people that fuck with Hitman, like really fuck with Hitman. And when three came out, I don't know why, but I was just like, I had, it was like that click moment where it finally was like, Mm -hmm. why the fuck haven't I tried this? Like, it's so much like Dishonored. I love, I love immersive Sims. Like immersive Sims are one of my favorite genres by like a lot. Um, like honestly, I think if you if you really were like gun to your head, like what are your three favorite genres? Like immersive sims are probably up there. Um, and Hitman's like 
the premier franchise doing that oh, shit yeah, right now. Definitely. And the, the the puzzles you have to solve in order to to complete the hits. Like it really does you look at it and it's it's kind of a gruesome concept for a game. Like you just go in and you're just murdering people. But it very much is a puzzle game. Yeah. And and I love doing this rather than like playing a war game. Uh, to me this is and the the people are always just the most abhorrent people you're killing. Yeah. You can justify it to yourself in your head that this person probably deserved to die because they're just a disgusting human being. And that's, I mean, that's part of the course. But on top of that, you then have these most incredible levels that have been very thoughtfully designed, as well as all of these different things you have to find within the level. Like McCall has been playing them too, and there was one where we were just searching for must have been an hour to find a block of cocaine because one of the challenges is, is kill someone with a block of cocaine. And we just could not find this block of cocaine anywhere. And then eventually we found it. And um, it was just that level of elevation you get. It's like, yes, I finally found the thing I needed to do in order to complete the challenge. It's it's really, really great fun. It's really funny. Uh, what, just you saying the thing about like the concept, like spurred a thought in me. Like uh, I played another game this week that I didn't, I forgot to write down which was um i started replaying party hard on switch um and that's similar ish in terms of like you know it's a 2d sprite isometric but like you're a serial killer and you have to kill everybody at the party (laughs) and like every time i play that game i'm like this is such a fucked up concept but this game is so fun and like funny and silly that like it kind of gets away with the fact that it's like this really gruesome edgelordy kind of concept and i feel like hitman toes that line too because like it is dark, but it's also fun and silly, you know? It's hilarious. The like the writing is so funny. Like you'll put an outfit on and there's one level in Hitman Two which I've which I've replayed and it's uh, the level at the bank in New York and someone's come for an interview and you go and you kill him and it's just like uh she's just like Hey, you look totally different he's like oh yeah i uh, had a change of clothes or something and it's just like, all these like quippy one-liners he comes out with just to bring on to the fact that you it makes no sense that for agent 47 gets away with these outfits like he's got a barcode on the back of his head and yet he can put some stupid suit on or like a clown outfit and nobody recognizes have him you, uh, it's absolutely ridiculous <laughs> have you ever seen um the netflix show i think you should leave now no so first of all everyone should watch it it's really fun like absurdist kind of sketch comedy there's this fucking amazing bit in it where uh, they're at a. It's the ske- The sketch is that they're at a bank, and the main character, the guy who's like the main character in every sketch, uh, he's in a hot dog costume, and there's this like wiener mobile that's been driven through the wall at the bank, and he's standing in the crowd of all the people in the wiener costume, and he's like, "Yeah, we're all looking for the guy that did this." Like, and they're, they're all just. <laughs> And they're like, it's pretty obvious it's you. And he's like, um, no, like, why would I be sitting here incriminating myself? Like, if I did this, wouldn't I obviously run away? Like, and it's just so funny because that's like, as soon as you said that, that's exactly what I'm thinking. It's like a murder breaks out and Agent 47's just sitting in like a fucking ice cream costume. And he's like, oh, who did this? Like, we're all- that's absolutely what it's like. You just like run away or like you're <laughs> running away from someone because you've been identified like you've, they've seen you doing a crime. So you just smash someone in the face take their outfit they walk around the corner and they just like say nothing it's like so clearly blatantly obvious that you've just taken that person out and then put their clothes on because they're sat there naked on the floor so and yet funny. they never figure it out it's so funny hold on i'm trying to find that 
Yeah, here it is. Um, this is a new thing I'm going to start doing on the show. I did it on After Dark today where I just resize a window and pull it over my face so you can see what I'm talking about for the YouTube viewers. <laughs> Here you go. We're all looking for the guy that did this. Oh, no. <laughs> I made it too big. You see the hot dog, man. You get it. <laughs> anyway, uh, so speaking of Hitman and IO Interactive, uh, we got a we got a, a piece of news breaking this week. Um it originally uh, came from Windows Central, but but uh, we saw it first over at Eurogamer uh, from Tom Phillips. And IO Interactive um, has reportedly begun working on a new IP uh, with Xbox that is going to be a bit of a shift uh, from what they're, they're better known for here with Hitman, uh, in that it's going to be a fantasy project that um, prominently at least seems prominently to feature dragons. Dragons are mentioned oh, definitely multiple the times. It's supposedly called Project Dragon. Yeah. So this this came from, I think it was a job like posting on IO Interactive's website that says you'd be part of an unannounced AAA project, which is a brand new title and concept where you'd be joining the core team shaping the foundation of a continuous journey. We can't wait to see where you take us. And it says Department Dragon on the right-hand side. Um, there was a quote here, uh, from the head of the studio, uh, Hakan Ar- Abrak. Hakan Ar- Abrak is probably, um, I'm sorry, uh, for mispronouncing your name. Um, and, and he said, uh, without going into too much detail, we have a third universe that we're actively working on. Third being Hitman. We know they're also working on James Bond and now this, um, that we're actively working on, which is a bit different and absolutely a love child. It's something our core people, our veteran staff, have been dreaming about for a long time. Uh, which is super cool. Um, I, I'm i very interested in this because... For, for a lot of reasons. Um, IO is a really cool studio. I think their their whole history, like in recent memory has been awesome like seeing them like get acquired like leave get to keep their ip and then like somehow be more successful than they were um with the backing of fucking square enix um is is awesome i mean it was it i mean that story alone is is awesome i mean if you haven't watched the no clip documentary on it where basically they got dumped by square it was we decided we don't want to go down Hitman anymore, and it was after the essentially the episodic failure that was Hitman One because it doesn't it didn't work episodically. No one bought the game because people were just like, "Well, I'm just going to wait for it all to come out." Because so wait, I, two I want to play it piecemeal. Two was the first one they did independently. No, yeah, two was the first Hitman game they okay. did independently, um, and it got published by Warner Brothers in America, and it was self published by IO. Uh, in other countries interesting and i know now they're doing self-publishing actually in the, in the uh, article um he said that they're actually looking to publish other people's games in the future and that they're going to be doing their own stuff as well um and he said it was just a few handful of years ago where this was unthinkable where it was more than just a f- or i'm sorry where it was more just a few big publishers things are changing that still works i think big publishers have a role to play going forward i'll be open and say that it's very likely that io will have one of our games published by someone else that's very possible but the idea of them like being able to do more independent stuff is really cool and the fact that this is like a, a project they've been kind of you know germating for years they like they've been hoping to make I don't know about you, but between Blood, Sweat, and Pixels and then now press reset, um, that is a 
infinitely fascinating thing to me. The projects that that people are like working on in the background for years and trying mm-hmm. to keep alive and they think it's never going to happen and then it does. Like if there really are people that have been working on, you know, since maybe Hitman 1 or longer or whatever, right? They're, they said the veterans of the studio um, who've been like wanting to make this game for like six, nine years or something like that. And then all of a sudden they can do it. That's incredible. That's so exciting on, on its face. And then the fact that it's a fantasy game specifically about dragons, I'm super hype about that. Because um, this is something that, I don't know, if you're a longtime listener, or if you've listened to After Dark or whatever, you might know this about me. But um, before I, before I, you know, did journalism and came down this path or whatever, like, I briefly flirted with the idea of, like, studying computer science and, like, I, I wanted to get into game dev. And that was, like, my big idea. That was the thing I always wanted to make. Like, if I, if I could make any game, right, was I wanted to make a game that was about, like, that was, like, a fantasy, you know, adventure-type open-world experience. And I wanted to have a game that was about, you know, you know Fable 2? I've never played any of the Fable games, but I know all of it. Do you yeah. remember the dog in Fable 2 by any chance? No. So that was a huge mechanic in that game was that you had a dog and it, it, it you interacted with it in all these different ways and it was like a companion but a tool and whatever. And I wanted to have a game about you being a, a kid who finds like a dragon egg after people think that they're extinct or whatever and it starts like that but then eventually it gets big and then you're like flying around and stuff. I can't believe you've just given away this concept, Pete, that we could have taken and ran with, you know. I mean, edit it out. <laughs> That'll be our, our first big voxel game. Um, but yeah, so like the idea of like a game that's just about like, oh, it's like it's about dragons. Like it's a dragon combat game or whatever. Like, oh, that sounds super interesting. Like I, I'm very eager to to see what that. I mean, obviously, this is probably like fucking 10 years away at this point, but <laughs> it's, it's massively years away. But, but coming from this team. I'll eat up anything they do after the Hitman games. I can't wait for the James Bond game because I know it's just like it's taking that Hitman formula, added yeah. another IP I absolutely adore on top of it. it it's totally going to work. And, and it'll yeah, probably put totally them on different. the map. Like, I can imagine, mm-hmm. like, if that game comes out and it's a big hit, like, it could really... They, they can have exclusive rights to all of the James Bond games going forwards at that point because why wouldn't you just let them make these James Bond games? Not like anyone else is making them. Yeah. yeah, when's the last time there was a relevant James Bond game? Like, the GameCube? The last one I remember playing was Nightfire on the GameCube, and it was the last decent one. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, just in general, super exciting time for, for IO, it seems. And I'm, I'm the idea that they're, like, partnering with Microsoft on this, too, is is probably pretty good for them. Um, and a big win for Microsoft, although they, they've already got, like, a bit of a big stable of fantasy games coming up. I mean, you've got... You've got Bethesda. You've got that new game. I think it's Avowed coming from Obl- um, Oblivion, Obsidian. Uh, not Oblivion, Obsidian. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've potentially got this one coming. Well, and they also have um, they have that other fantasy IP. They have another one. I thought. Do they? I think so. Man. I don't know. I mean, it's great. I love fantasy games. Which is so strange to me because I don't like fantasy movies or anything like that. But yeah, fantasy I don't think games, um, I don't I, think you I, know yeah. if you like them or not. You like when we talked about it, you're like very true. Like I, I haven't seen Lord of the Rings. Since I didn't I like was Lord like of the Rings when 10. I was seven. <laughs> <laughs> like, maybe give it another shot. 
Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited for this. I, I'm, I'm happy to see them continue to succeed. I think IO is, is a really cool studio with like a great personality. Um, and I, I love to see independent studios of their size because I want to see more AAA games that are not beholden to stockholders and billionaires trying to make more money. Um, Rather having like a studio of dedicated, talented artists that just want to make dope art, like that's what we need. Um, yeah, and they seem like one of the studios that actually looks after their staff rather than yeah, well, some of the others. You hear these horror stories. It it really seems like crunch is less of a thing here. I wonder why. Very much as you come to work and do the games you want. Yeah, it's because billion dollar companies that don't sell hardware shouldn't make video games because uh, you can't just grow profits every year, year over year, unless you're selling. Call of Duty, I guess. Thanks, Activision. Um, oh, man, I hate that fucking... We'll, we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that later. Uh, so, Super Mario Party Online got an update two years later. I can't, I genuinely can't believe this, this happened. I woke up on Monday, and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Oh, my God. I was, like, freaking out. Yeah. I sent you the message straight away. I was like, we have to play this. Chewie was all in. We're gonna, we've are gonna we roped Sierra in. We're going to play this on Thursday. I, I I can't wait. I haven't played Super Mario Party in ages because you can't have anyone over at the moment to play it. And now I can finally play this game again. Super exciting. Yeah. Um, just to get you through the details real quick, uh, regular Mario Party and partner party modes are both fully playable online. 70 of 80 mini games are playable. and we, we did a little bit of digging. It's like the very heavy motion control ones that don't work. So most of them are, are good to go. Um, <clears throat> there's a, an invite uh, friend system feature that you probably have never heard of that is system wide on the Nobody's Nintendo Switch. Heard of it, yeah. And no games take advantage of it, really. You can do it with this, which is great. Pretty quick to get into a party. Um, and, uh, it does use the next system, the NEX system, which is the old Windows 98. Windows 98. Yeah. That we talked about a couple <laughs> months ago. Uh, not the new system that Monster Hunter is on, but, um, it does seem like things are pretty good. Uh, AJ had talked about how it's pretty seamless and, um, we had a note here, uh, about how it looks like they're using relay servers rather than direct peer to peer connection so it's it's working quite a bit better than what you might yeah and this is the the first game that seems to uh have done it so this was like a, something they added in i think it was in the system 10 update um and these relay services are, are present in a bunch of games already animal crossing's got it pokemon home apparently has it let's go has it ring fit adventure has it but it's not turned on in any of those games the only game it's been turned on in is super mario party and seemingly it's smooth as anything. Like 3D World we played and we had serious issues with lag and that. So I'm very curious to see with the same crew or similar crew, we've got you, we've got Sierra, we don't have AJ, but I'm very curious to see how it compares to when we played the, the 3D World because that was a, a car crash Yeah, in terms of lag. Yeah, so uh, this Thursday, come tune in. Uh, we're going to be hanging out. Um, time subject to change. So come... Uh the Discord or Twitch, Twitch, uh, Twitch, Twitter, and we'll have updates. Uh, so jumping along into the Microsoft side of things, um, we got some reports this week uh, from Tom Warren over at The Verge that are pretty interesting. So uh, the first big story is that Microsoft is reducing the cut they take um, on PC games to twelve percent, 
which is down uh, from the 30 that they used to take on the Microsoft Store. Um, obviously, a lot of people prognosticating about kind of the why of this. Um, you know, it seems pretty obvious that they're trying to make a more aggressive play on PC and be able to, you know, compete with the likes of Steam and um, and the Epic Game Store, which, of course, offer, um, you know, better percentages than 30. Um, I don't remember exactly what Steam's cut is, but isn't Epic's... Steam's is 18, I believe they reduced it to, and Epic's is 12, yeah. so they're matching Epic games. It's also worth noting that the the next documents we're going to talk about come from Microsoft backing up Epic games in their court case against Apple. Uh, and so it seems like they're trying to align with Epic in terms of this is how much we're charging to force Apple's hand in reducing their 30% cut on the iOS store and the Mac's app store. Which you got to imagine, um, not surprising, right? Like, I mean, they're they're both in different, in their own unique ways, they're both trying to circumvent, you know, Apple's walled garden on, on iOS um, because obviously such a huge number of... of of users over there um, that they want to be able to continue to take advantage of. But, you know, um, it is funny. Like that whole story is like, nothing makes me feel more gross than when people try to like a free Fortnite. Yeah. Like when people try to like ascribe, uh, you know, like moralism to billion dollar companies, like, you know, like, don't get me wrong. Right. Like I've defended Epic plenty of times. I think as for as big of a player as they are, they generally seem to be the nice guy more than the bad guy. Um, but you make that face, right? I'm not not in totality, right? And I'm not I'm not sitting here saying that they're the good guy. I'm saying as far as billion dollar companies go, they've done some good stuff. They've helped out some little guys, like whatever, right? They have. Yeah. The end of the day, this is to make more money. But there's also that argument to be made that if this works. If Epic and and Microsoft now can strong arm Apple, it is a rising tide that will help all ships. That will help the little guy because very true. Thirty percent because it's thirty Apple on Apple, right? All, it is, but they have already made some some contingencies. So last WWDC, which was their worldwide developer conference, was in July last year. They announced the small business plan or something like that okay where if you make less than a million dollars a year from the app store they only take 15 percent. that's better like that's that's definitely not bad I, I i think that's you know that's a good way to go like i certainly don't mind them charging 30 to the to the bigger players um but yeah for like the you know the independence or whatever like 30 percent is a huge cut that's in, that's kind of an egregious massive um yeah. that's like a third of your profit um that's ridiculous uh so you know Again, uh, I know that uh, Epic and Microsoft are doing this so they can make billions of more dollars. But uh, if it works out and it ends up helping out iOS consumers and developers, that's that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is absolutely an aggressive move. Like it is, again, Microsoft more likely to make the pro-consumer move than not. Sure, like great. Glad they want to do this. The reason they're doing this is yes, so that they can fucking compete. Extent. Yeah, well, I mean, then the documents that came out today, which are directly from the Epic Games um, case, said they were planning to look uh, to do the same cut to 12% on the Xbox store. And that was their plan in January when they filed these documents. They now say that that has fallen through or they have no plans to make those changes. However, Tom's article does explore the case um, where these documents also say 
uh, the the 88% share comes with a caveat. So that caveat is that they need to get grant Microsoft streaming rights, which means that the developers will only get the better rate if they allow the game to be included in xCloud. So there's a possibility that that PC rate will come with that caveat of you have to let us put your game on xCloud. That makes sense. Or even this Xbox rate, if this 12% does go ahead, it may be a case of it's usually 30%, but we'll give you 12% if you let us stream your game on Game Pass. I think that's fair, frankly. Like, I I don't know. Maybe I don't know enough to say that. But the idea that, like, well, okay, no, we, we want to retain those rights ourselves and sell them to somebody else. Cool. Whatever. Well, then, then this is the deal you get, right? But if you're yeah, willing you to get in bed with us, you can make more money, right? Like, yeah, that, that sounds okay. Like, that doesn't seem unreasonable. At least on its face. I would love to hear what a developer thinks about that. I don't, you know, maybe that's, maybe I'm giving Microsoft too much credit, but. Um... So we had a tweet here from Daniel Ahmed uh, who had said that he didn't feel like it made sense to to make that same cut for for consoles. And uh, there's a few tweets here from him that I'll that I'll read. Uh, There isn't much incentive for Microsoft or any of the console manufacturers to do this. Publishers will get their games on Xbox or will put their games on Xbox regardless. For reference, here's a quick thread on why a 12% cut does make sense for Microsoft's PC store and why it's playing into the Epic V Steam line of thinking there. So it's it's literally just getting into the data of it of what we just laid out. So, you know, take our word for it or go read Daniel's tweets. Um, But essentially, it's Microsoft is doing this to be an aggressive competitor to these other platforms you know yeah i mean um tom who wrote the verge article also did reply to daniel and said the only way he thinks this is going to happen on xbox is to secure cloud gaming but also to reduce their party exclusives right. on other platforms so if say playstation was going to say we'll give you like a million dollars to make this exclusive the incentive is over on microsoft side you could double your like reduce microsoft's cut by half to 12 percent which is a phenomenal amount of money if your games were already selling extremely well over on xbox just to stop it being exclusive on another platform and not to mention that it coming to game pass is probably helpful for your like the star power of your game and like maybe your studio like you know it's hard to talk about the realities of what that does for you because it's still kind of new but Mm -hmm. You could see the argument that, right, like, say you're an indie game, maybe you were going to take that deal from PlayStation, you get a better deal at Microsoft, and your game is accessible to millions of people for free, essentially, uh, and then your next game maybe gets more attention because it blew up on Game Pass, you know, or like, you know, oh, I know that developer by name now. I loved, uh, I'm trying to think of, what was that? Spirit Fair. I loved Spirit Fair on, on Game Pass. I'll yeah, buy I mean, the next I, I played. I played Carrion on uh, Game Pass, so the next game that that developer brings out, I'll absolutely be paying attention. Exactly, because I wouldn't have picked that. I wouldn't have played that game otherwise. I'm not a Metroidvania guy, as I've said on the show a million times. But I don't know that one really stuck with me when I tried it, and the only reason I tried it was because I was looking through Game Pass, and I was like, "Oh, this looks cool." Yeah, exactly. Um, and then just to continue Dan's uh, thread here, uh, he said, if Xbox were to drop its take rate on console today across digital games and add-ons, it'd be sacrificing one-third of its total revenue. I imagine they would want to grow Game Pass subscribers and PC mobile business first, so they're not mostly dependent on console uh, 
SW slash SV. I'm not sure what that means. Software, but I don't know what the software. I, I, I don't know what the. I would imagine like subscriptions or something. Sure. Um. So the only way I see this happening is twofold. The 12% deal on console is not open to everyone, but only those that agree to certain conditions, e.g. exclusive uh, exclusivity options, or two, the 12% take only applies to full game downloads while MTX stays 30%. I mean, I could see that. Microsoft aren't going to want to let the microtransactions become 12%. How much are they getting off those Fortnite bucks and um, FIFA football credits? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so interesting to see. I, I don't I don't imagine we'll see too much movement on the console side of things soon. But um, I think the the context that was added there in terms of like maybe this is the thing we see them do uh, once they've grown the Game Pass side of business a little bit more. I think I could see that making a ton of sense, right? As they try to grow that and make that the main source of revenue versus, you know, individual game sales. Especially if streaming is going to be everywhere. You know, if streaming does come to Switch, you don't want to be launching your streaming service and most of the big games that are on Game Pass, you haven't got the rights to stream them because it just looks like a real weak hand. Whereas if you can say, we'll give you this bad deal and then your game's available everywhere, then that's the ideal solution for Microsoft. Yeah, I agree. Okay, yeah, there was one other thing I wanted to touch on here, which was um, there have been uh, some exclusivity agreements that are already currently in place. So uh, Stalker 2 is listed with a a three-month console exclusivity deal. Tetris Effect Connected has six months, uh, and the gunk with perpetual exclusivity to Xbox. So you can already kind of see how this could play out and like the idea of them committing to like different windows of exclusivity is interesting to me. Cause that kind of reminds yeah, me. I'm surprised Stalker 2 is only three months considering all of the footage and all of the PR around that has been on Xbox's platforms. Yeah. It's been on Xbox's YouTube channel on their streams. Everything for Stalker has been Xbox, I, and to see it's only three months, and then it's going to be on PlayStation is mad. I feel like this is, like, Xbox's response to, like, the PS Plus bump, you know? Because it reminds me of that, like, of, like, a um, a Fall Guys or, or a Rocket League, right? Where it comes out, and it's like, ah, oh, it's free on PS Plus this month. It's only on PlayStation, or maybe it's on PlayStation and PC. And you get it for free. It finds an audience. You intimately associate it with that brand for a certain amount of time, and then it goes multi-platform. For you as an indie, I can't imagine a better deal. I really can't. You're getting a ton of press and bump from one of the biggest players in the game. You're on Xbox Game Pass for free for three months. Everybody gets a taste. You get word of mouth going. If the game's good, when it comes to other platforms, motherfuckers are going to be running to it, you know? One, I think we've seen from these idea Xbox things, which is what these these exclusivity deals all stemmed from, was that they give some cash up front as well yes. in order to fund that initial development. So you've got that cash flow right at the beginning to bolster your development team, get the game a- across the line, and then you get this this advertising from Microsoft on top of and that. And you retain the rights. <laughs> I don't understand how this works out well for Microsoft, but <laughs> I mean, whatever. <laughs> more games on the platform right um so yeah this is interesting uh 
it's it's not terribly surprising though it's like it's like the latest in a long line of aggressive moves from microsoft to continue to make their platforms more attractive (laughs) my buying everyone yeah Yeah. or or again like are making those cuts to be like yeah no like come come to an exclusive with the windows store on pc like i i I don't imagine it'll be long until we start seeing that oh i can't wait to see everyone complain like they did about the uh, epic games oh yeah they absolutely will um because for some reason pc gamers want monopolies great um anyway so uh moving over to the activision blizzard side of things uh we had a few pretty big pieces of news this week um one of which is gonna make my blood boil uh so look forward to that one anyway i'm just gonna sit back and let you rant when that one comes perfect <laughs> you <laughs> All right, just uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off. I won't I won't I won't amp up yet. So um, the the first headline this week around the Activision Blizzard news uh, was that uh, the CEO of the company, Bobby Kotick, uh, took a a pretty significant pay cut. Um, so this comes from uh, Stephen Totillo over at Axios. Um, great to see you back in the game, Stephen. Um, so. His salary is, is was cut in half, or will be cut in half, uh, to eight hundred and seventy five thousand dollars a year. Um, How is he going to survive? I know his poor family, uh, and a reduction of one point seventy five million in potential annual bonuses. Bonuses. Wow. So he's getting bonuses that are nearing two million dollars while they're laying people off. Cool, great. Thanks, Activision. Anyway, Activision, super great company. Totally love them. Just kidding. Anyway, uh, provisions for lucrative bonuses tied to stock performance have also been removed or rewritten to limit other potential bonus payouts. That that follows reports that they triggered payments of as much as $200 million earlier this year. Yeah, that's how much he got paid this year in bonuses. So he's, you know, he may be taking a reduction of like, what, three million when you add the reduction in bonuses yeah. and the reduction in salary, but he's still getting a shitload of money. That's walking around um, money. I, <laughs> <laughs> I understand that they've limited this, but for me, the most fascinating part of the story is the fact that all of this came from the fact that uh, the shareholders complained. And it was 12 months of the shareholders complaining and saying, why are you giving Bobby Kotick so much money? And I, I love uh, the quote. It says, quote, extensive shareholder outreach. The idea that they're just yeah. like, what the fuck? Are we, why, why are we spending this much money on this guy? Yeah, I don't know. I... Okay, I'm going to save the rage because it's all building to the same thing. So I'm just going to we're going to get to the next part. And then we're going to go. I mean, you have got to look at the fact, though, that he's been there since 1991, when Activision was nothing. Yeah. But I also think we have to look at the fact that the success wasn't necessarily because he's at the top. And does he deserve $200 million while he fires people? No. Spoiler alert. No, he doesn't. Um, No one needs to make $200 million, period. I'm not going to sit here and say the guy's done nothing, right? Like you said, like... He's been at the helm for a long time, and the studio is insanely successful. They're massive. They're one of the biggest players in the game. Like, credit where credit's due. Um, the guy was already making over a million dollars a year. Just salary. Right. That's a lot. Like, that's a lot. 
Like, I'm sorry. I've said this before. Video game executives should not make that much money. Like, like I, video games are a multi-billion... I wouldn't even get to the next story and I'm already mad. Video games are a multi-billion dollar industry. It is the most lucrative entertainment industry right now. And the creators of the actual fucking art that makes the money are treated like disposable pieces in a fucking Lego set. Cogs in a machine that don't fucking matter. And guess what? Spoiler alert, they fucking do. It's the artists. It's the creators. It's the producers. It's the fucking payroll people on the ground that do the actual fucking work that get these games across the goddamn bow so that Bobby Kotick can take home 200 million fucking dollars a year while he lays people off. My friend, my friend lost their job this year at, at Blizzard. And then, and then, and then they had the fucking gall to hire them back as a contractor after they fucking fired them. Like, get out of here, dude. Like, it's gross. It's gross. And, and, you know, we were talking about this when the, the next story came out. So let's jump into it. Well, I, I just want, before we move on, I want to I want to bring it back to how much he made. So he made $20 for million. It. And compare that to other people in the industry. Now, the main person I want to compare it to is, is Phil Spencer, because I think we can say that he's doing a phenomenal job. We don't know how much Phil's yeah. making. But it's significantly less than $200 million because the CEO of Microsoft, like that's all of Microsoft, not just Xbox, Made forty-two million in salary. No, in total okay, compensation. Okay. So when Bobby's bringing in over two hundred million, you tell me he deserves more than four times Microsoft. that. That's fucking insane, bro. And again, how many people got laid off? And then it comes back to the bottom fucking line right what is the bottom line when it comes to this stuff it's the art it's the artistry and in the latest development uh toys for bob is now a call of duty support studio not even not even a studio lead a support studio so let's talk about why this is bullshit well, you know what? Fine. We can even get into this. There was an incorrect report of layoffs. That didn't happen. So a lot of people didn't lose their jobs. Great. They uh, are just getting pivoted to be a support studio now. Awesome. Cool. So <laughs> you know the funniest thing for me, though, is the fact that this company is called Toys for Bob. And now they're making games where you murder people and commit war crimes. <laughs> yep. And okay. So there was an Activision quote. That re- responded to the games uh, industry biz article about the re- the layoffs. And they said reports of layoffs for Toys for Bob are incorrect. There has not been a reduction in personnel recently at the studio. The development team is operating fully and has a number of full time job openings at this time. The studio is excited to continue supporting Crash Bandicoot Four. It's about time, and more recently to provide additional development support to Call of Duty Warzone. So there is a chance that maybe I'm overreacting, maybe this is a an interim thing, and they'll get to lead another game in the future. But if you read Jason's book uh, that we'll be talking all about later, um, 
This left an extremely poor taste in my mouth while reading this book because I'll tell you what, I've read seven of the nine chapters in Jason's book, and there are a lot of stories of studio closures that start just like this one. So, why is this... And probably like the Vicarious Visions story very, very early in the... Yeah, right? And I had a super visceral, emotional reaction to that, and I feel like I I was downplayed a little bit. Like, Pete, like maybe you're overreacting. I wasn't overreacting, and I'm going to tell you why this is exceptional fucking bullshit, okay? Because... Take my bias to this story completely out of the equation, right? And I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. I love Crash Bandicoot. I love Spyro the Dragon. I love Tony Hawk. I love that they were making remakes of those games, and I wanted to see more of them. I've been vocal about that. That is an obvious bias in this conversation. I'm going to put that up front, try to leave that at the door and take what I'm saying, you know, with a grain of salt, I guess, but... This is a a byproduct of the diseased fucking nature of billion-dollar corporations that make video games that don't sell hardware. And I say the hardware caveat for an important reason. Not because the hardware makers are these incredible, kind, whatever. No, it's the reality is that when you have a box to sell, you don't have to make as many compromises when it comes to some of the artistry side of things, right? Because if your company is making billions of dollars, if you're making profits year over year because your hardware sells better and better, you're fine. And you can answer to your board and your shareholders and not have to run into that, right? Where that becomes a problem is when you look at the EAs and the Activisions of the world. EA, uh, the most famous example of this is, of course, Dead Space, right? Dead Space critically beloved franchise sold better every entry ea gave it the axe because it wasn't growing exponentially enough it wasn't a brand that was that could grow beyond its niche and go mainstream and even though it was profitable they never lost money on it that wasn't enough for them to keep it going we all know how that story played out for visceral unfortunately now let's pivot to this activision example right with both studios and i want to bring up the vicarious visions thing again Vicarious Visions and Toys for Bob are two studios now that for several years have been working on these these projects, right? That are platformers, that are skateboarding games, that are these very specific kind of video game. They have built teams around making these games. They have hired directors, art leads, regular fucking boots on the ground developers who have uprooted their lives probably moved cities probably some in some cases moved countries to come and work at activision and work at specifically vicarious visions or toys for bob to make this kind of game right so those people that they hired to make this kind of game have the experience or the skill set or now after years of practice and learning have the skill set and experience to make that kind of game. And guess what? They made it, and they made it well. Every single one of those games was financially successful. Some of them were extremely successful and exceeded some of the expectations for themselves. And what was their reward? Their reward was to have their studio's identity stripped. Their ability to lead projects maybe in Vicarious Vision's 
case, not not as much, but with Toys for Bob, stripped. So now, uh, Toys for Bob gets to keep their name, I guess. We'll see how long that lasts. And now, all these extremely talented developers who busted their ass for years to revive completely fucking dead and dormant franchises all have to pivot to be support studios on a first-person shooter, which is a thing that shares almost no skill set, and it's why you saw the creative director of the studio leave already, uh, or pivot to become a Blizzard studio and make top-down CRPG uh, or RTSs, which is another thing that has nothing in common with the fucking people that they've hired and cultivated and the team that they built for years. And it all goes back to this fucking problem that these suits who take home their $100 million bonuses look at developers as expendable. They don't fucking care about them. They don't care about their families. They don't care that they uproot their lives to come work at their company. They're, oh, now you're doing this. You still have your job. Great. So what? I don't know how to make a first-person shooter. I was a fucking level designer on Crash 4. Like that, those are not analogous skill sets. Not every video game is just the fucking same. And it's it's insulting. And especially because the fucking games were profitable. Like, Crash 4 has not even been out for six months. Mm-hmm. It sucks. Like, I, I can't say any more than you have. It really does suck. And seemingly... It's like five studios working on Call of Duty Warzone at this point. I think Activision, every team is going to be on this game because it's their most profitable game. It's like every team at Epic switched and piled on and assisted with Fortnite. But that's the thing. They're putting all their eggs in one basket. But that's the thing. Like Epic isn't even doing that though. Like they are developing other games still though. You know, I'm like, yeah, they, they did that. That's happened. But like... I don't know, man. Like, I get it. The only games, the only other games they're making, from what I understand, are the ones they purchased. You know, they bought Mediatonic, they bought um, the Rocket. Aren't they, I thought they were incubating another new game, though, now. Oh, are they? Well, I mean, that's great news. If that's I thought game. so. I'm, I might be misspeaking, but it's just it's just frustrating, man. And, and the reality is that that happened because some fucking bean counter was like, well... We could have them work on another Tony Hawk game and another Crash Bandicoot game or another Spyro game, and it'll make a profit. But if we just gut all these studios and have them fucking fart out guns in Call of Duty Warzone, that'll make more money. So let's do that. Like, just sell the IP already, man. And that's the thing that bothers me, too, is that these fucking companies sit on IP that people care about, like dragons. And, like, if you don't want to make Crash games, fine. Sell the fucking IP. Let sell the studio. Sell go sell Vicarious Visions and Tony Hawk to somebody that wants to fucking make it. Because the games were great. The studios were great. The fans loved them. And I would have bought everyone you put out. Do you know Pete who I think would be very good at making a Crash Bandicoot game or a Spyro game? <sighs> Who's that, Steve? Insomniac. You're damn right. Man. You're damn right. They would. <laughs> and you know why? Because Insomniac and PlayStation know how to make a good 3D platform. I'll tell you that. So, uh, moving on to much happier news. Ratchet and Clank uh, Rift Apart got a state of play 
this past week. And good God, man, this game, this game looks incredible. Like, I, I genuinely can't believe how good this looks. The technology. Looked. Like, I was like, okay, this looks great. This looks great. And then they opened up the doors. I think it was like at two minutes. And they opened up the door. And then you just saw that pan back of the city that you first go to. And I was like, holy fuck. How is this Did real? Did you catch the thing at the very beginning where it was like, none of this is pre-rendered. This is all in engine. Like, this, this is all, all just the game. Yeah. I was like, holy moly. Because I remember when Ratchet and Clank 2016 came out, I was like, this looks like a Pixar movie. Like, this looks incredible. And this makes that look old and and clunky, you know, which is insane. (laughs) It's really, really cool. And I'm actually jealous I'm not going to be able to play this game when it comes out in June. Because I don't have a PS5. You need to get a PS5. I can't. I I looked. So I I looked today after watching this uh, state of play. I was like, oh my god, I really want to play that game. And I still want to play the... um, the one that comes with the game astro oh, boy yeah, Astrobot. still want to play astro boys playroom oh my god it's like this could be the place for these 3d platformers the playstation could be it you know you've got you've got nintendo with mario yeah. but like oh my god these these games just blow what nintendo's done with the technology they've got in switch and all power to nintendo they've got so so much out of that little handheld mm-hmm. But this is just like next level. The ray tracing that you saw, the reflections, everything. It was just phenomenal. How good the ray tracing looks on specifically Clank's body is like insane. Like it's the whole world is being reflected on, off of him. It's nuts. Um, the thing that like obviously the, the pre-rendered thing was was crazy. But like uh, when they were talking about the Rift tech and how... With the power of the PS5. So there was this boss battle. Remember the boss battle? And you're like, you start on the one world and then you go through a rift and you're on a totally different world that's another level that you'll like go back to later or whatever. Yeah, and the voiceover person specifically said, this isn't a small arena. This is the entire world loaded because of the power of the SSD. Yeah, that it can load entire levels in the background with no loading screen. It's like, what the hell? That's insane. And, like, we knew that, I guess, on some level in terms of, like, when they showed this the first time, it was very much like a, oh, you could only do this with the tech of the PS5. Like, this wouldn't have been possible. But to see it in action and, like, really get a taste of what it's going to be like is, like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. And I love the gameplay innovations. Like, you can really see the influence from Spider-Man, like, with the new, like, he's got the wall jump and the dash. And then there's, like, a, a grappling hook that you can use to swing. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, the momentum of Spider-Man, uh, that all those learnings that they got there, they've brought into Ratchet. And it's, like, it's awesome. It's so awesome to see, like, how Insomniac is continuing to grow as a studio and, like, each new project they learn a new piece of the puzzle it feels like and you know it's exciting to think about what is the next spider-man gonna look like with the learnings of ratchet and clank and and yeah man the insomniac is one of the best studios in the game i really think so me too and i haven't seen this and, and just how good it looks and even the gameplay mechanics it just looks like a blast i've never played a ratchet and clank game you haven't Oh, no, never. Steve, uh, you so, will love them. Just, you will love them. I know, it looks so good. They're so charming, and the weapons are so creative. Like, oh, I love Ratchet and Clank. Um, um, and who was the new playable character? She looked great. Uh, Rivet is her name. Yeah, she looks I awesome. love her design, yeah. I, I, like, um, I like that she looks like a lot different than Ratchet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
the the vibe that she and and Clank have was fun because it's like I'm not like the biggest Ratchet and Clank fan. Like I played the first two or three on the PS2, like at a friend's house kind of thing, and then got back into it with 2016, which is a remake of the original. So if you actually want to play them, Steve, not a bad place to start and kind of get your feet wet. Um, That's uh, I guess PS4. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that they have had so many adventures together that they're very much like a dynamic duo, like they're best buddies, they're family kind of thing. So like the, introducing a new character into the mix who is going to kind of have that like, you know, oh, like uh, Clank Ratchet is alone, which is unique for him. And he's a fish out of water. And Clank is doing the same kind of thing, but with this new partner. You imagine they're all going to come together. She'll become a main member of the squad, maybe like... You know, it it feels like a good natural growth of that universe, and what at least what I Definitely. know about it, you know. And the and the other worlds, like I don't know if that's the case with the other Ratchet and Clank games, but they just look so. Oh different. yeah, that you the whole I mean, games are about going to different planets, and every planet is like totally different. Yeah, it looks so good. Like even down to the enemies are different, and the way you attack them are different. They had one in this uh, in this presentation, which was you have to fire off the the like pellets of grass or whatever and it, it killed them with yeah. that the poison it like grows around like them based monsters yeah it was so cool and i loved the fact that the the haptic feedback was was mentioned at that point it's like you feel it when it goes down and then you feel like the fact that it's going to work and do stuff yeah as it's growing um the, the the talk they had about the haptic feedback was the most excited i've ever been about haptic um and I'm not surprised Insomniac used it really well in Miles Morales. It was, like, very minor, but you would feel the tensileness of, like, the the web. Um, well, it sounds like that, that same thing is the case here. It was yeah. like when you pull back, you get that, that, those adaptive triggers do something. Well, and what I thought was cool was, like, it feels like a real evolution of that because they were talking about how, like, um, with the plant one that you brought up, it was, like, when an enemy is ready to be killed because the plants engulf them you'll get a, a physical, like, you'll know that from how the controller feels, and they couldn't really describe it that well. But um, the one thing that they talked about that, like, felt very tangible was, like, uh, they showed, like, a regular blaster-type weapon, and it was, like, if you just press the trigger like normal, you can shoot very well-centered, like, well-aimed single shots. And if you hold it down and, and push through the haptic, it goes auto, and it, it kind of starts getting a little bit unwieldy, and you need to aim it a little bit more carefully. And they had, like, a shotgun, and it was, like, if you do the regular one, it'll shoot one chamber and then go to the next chamber so you can rapid fire. But if you hold and do both, it'll do both explode at the once, and it's, like, a big burst shot. Like, that seems so fucking cool, and, like, those are the things that, like were the promise of haptic and like actually seeing Mm -hmm. them I think is going to be exciting, but it also adds kind of a dimensionality to the gameplay because now it's like all of the weapons are actually like two weapons. Oh yeah, definitely. And you've got to make that choice as to how am I going to approach this? How am I going to attack? Do I need to quickly fire this off and get out of danger or can I take that more structured approach and, and go in slowly and, and use the standard and like the dash is really cool like because dodging in ratchet and clank was always just like rolling or jumping and like this it makes the combat feel so much quicker and that like 
you could really like if you're good at it and you're timing your shit right, like you can really be zipping around and taking everybody out and like. I mean, some of that feels like back, coming from Sunset Overdrive. Sure, it really does feel yeah. like some of that, you know. And and the the rifts. I love the fact that yeah, perhaps maybe that is the gimmick of the game. It doesn't feel like they've shoehorned them in everywhere. It was a case of yeah, these are in the battles and you can do it to get to safety and the the enemy will follow you through. But it wasn't like you're walking around town and every single every five minutes you're going through a rift, which was nice yeah. to see. It really feels like there's been some thought into how that works. And and it, yes, it demonstrates the tech of the PlayStation, but it's there for a reason and it's it's had some real design thought and philosophy put into it and the way that they've thought of multiple ways to leverage it like that you could use it in that boss battle and go to a totally new level but then like in the regular battles you kind of just use it to like warp yourself like in dishonor around quick yeah, yeah it's like you pull yourself and you're oh now i'm across the room yeah. and like all of those things it speaks to just how like when you really like boil down what insomniac does well and not always i think this is a more recent thing like you know going back to spyro and even the og ratchet and stuff it wasn't necessarily about this but like all of their games from like Sunset Overdrive to now, it feels like they've really gotten focused on the idea of momentum and like how you should be able to, if you have the skill, seamlessly move from action to action and like never feel like you're you're stopping or having to stand still. And I love that about their games. It just it makes them feel so um I don't know, like it's frenetic and frantic, but like when you're in control of something like that, you just feel like a badass, you know? Ah, I'm so excited. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, having watched that Miles Morales movie, it really makes me want to play that game. And having seen this as get, well, I was just like, oh, you got to get a PlayStation 5. You got to get a PlayStation 5. I know I do because I don't want to play that on PS4. I really don't. I want, I want to play it on a console with new tech. along with this right like this is the first ps5 game from the ground up that's not demon souls so it's do you know what though like the the price still seems so rich to me 70 pounds <laughs> feels like a lot yeah. of money to pay for a game i mean it is what it is you know we gotta either get with it or wait for the discounts and with sony games that actually happens so that but I, i'm looking forward to it i'm looking forward to this one this is one of my most anticipated games of the year right now uh, just one more thing I want to touch on with, with Ratchet and Clank before we move on. Um, they only showed it very briefly, but I also was really encouraged to see they teased the accessibility uh, menu and all yes. that. And it looks like it's a lot of those features that The Last of Us Part Two uh, got praised for. So I love the idea that like, I don't know, maybe if there was like some technology sharing going there or if maybe that's just like a mandate within PlayStation, but the idea that like, you know, ideally, all of the big first-party PlayStation games moving forward will start to see those innovations is something that I'm really happy to see. Yeah, that, yeah, that was a good point. And they said they're going to show more about that coming soon, I think they said. Um, I don't know if it's it's uh, kind of Sony Studios-wide, because I don't think Returnal had any of that, which has just come out this week. Yeah, um, that's not a first-party game, I know there was... Like, it's Sony Studios, but they don't own oh, yeah. um, Housemark. Housemark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah at that point it might be the first party studio um like yeah mandate. i hope so i hope so um love to see more gamers being able to play me too all right so let's jump into our main topic um i like i said uh got early access to jason schreier's next book press reset a few weeks ago um i've been reading it for you know the last couple weeks and uh i'm most of the way through it i've got about two chapters left um, 
I so just to give you a, a sense of like what I'm allowed to say and what the context of this conversation is going to be. Uh, I was given early access. I am allowed to talk about it before release, but I am not allowed to talk about um, specific, like a lot of specifics, and I'm not allowed to like share quotes or anything like that. So, some of my answers okay. I'm going to have to like vague, vaguely re- reply, but I'm allowed to talk about what I think about it, what I feel about it. I'm allowed to broadly talk about what the content of, of some of the chapters are. So, I, I have a good amount of room to discuss it. But if there's any questions that come up or anything that I'm not able to answer, I will have a full proper review of the book up and available on release day, which is, uh, of course, uh, May 11th. So not too long to wait. Um, I'm supremely jealous that you got to read this early and it will be delivered to my Kindle at midnight on May 11th and I will be reading it because I am so excited for this. You know, we both loved Blood Spent Pill because I think I read it and I said, Pete, you have to read this book. You read you boy you read it on your cruise that you went on and it was just like just finished it and we came back and we've been gushing about that book for years now i'm so glad that jason's done a follow-up to it so i want to know everything what's your like initial thoughts does this live up to blood sweat and pixels is it very different to blood sweat and pixels because obviously it's different content blood sweat and pixels was about the development of specific games this is more about studios as a whole so yeah so uh overall um, I think it it does live up to Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. Um, I've said here before, uh, and in, in a multitude of places, I think Blood, Sweat, and Pixels is the best book about video games that I've read. Um, and I don't say that lightly. I've read a lot of them. Uh, I I think that Jason, the access that he gets, uh, the interviews he's able to conduct, but I think even more importantly, the way that he crafts them into a narrative after the fact and takes all these disparate interviews and kind of like corroborates and like kind of figures out the timeline and then puts it in a way where it actually feels like a story rather than just a collection of, you know, of like an anthology or whatever um, is, is really impressive. And it's, it's actually more impressive in this book because I remember in blood, sweat and pixels, it was always kind of like a, the last paragraph of every chapter is kind of like, well, and then, you know, in this, you know, across the world, this little plucky studio was doing something similar, right? Whereas with this, mm-hmm. there's actually characters that are like we- woven through it. Like the first chapter is pretty much all about Warren Spector, who uh, probably best known for Deus Ex, but is like a legend. And it goes through kind of his whole career and like all the studio closures and ups and downs that he went through. And then he, as a character, appears in, like, several of the chapters that have come up afterwards because oh, some other so developer who they wrote about, oh, they worked with Warren at, at Ion uh, Storm, but then they were here, and then they were here. And, like, you see all these paths cross in these r- interesting ways, and it, A, it makes the industry feel smaller than I think it felt to me before, but it also speaks to how common a problem this is and like how common it is for game devs to just be forced, you know, even if their game's a success, to pack up their lives and relocate and move cities and not buy a house, not have kids, like all these things that people take for granted and that they're just not even options. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of that is why you see a bunch of people and, and veterans to making their own studios just being like i'm sick of this and i want to do my own and, thing is any of that highlighted in yeah the book? and uh there's a huge section on that in in warren's chapter and and it talks about how that doesn't always go so well either and like you know some of the reasons that it doesn't and 
it's it's crazy and and uh i think the thing that i the thing that i was struck by the most i think about it was how there are these things that feel like they should be anecdotal and then you realize that they're like like kind of just understood in the industry like one of the things i thought was interesting was that um like one of the things that somebody pointed out in one of the chapters was that uh, a cake being brought in for no reason was a bad omen. And that that was like a thing that they recognized as a red flag. And I was like, what? Like it's that common that you like knew that that was a problem? And like stuff about how when studios close, a lot of times people think about, you know, oh, the games that they didn't get to make or the people losing their jobs. But like you don't think as much about like the human cost of not only like the moving and all that stuff, but like hearing some of these quotes from people talking about how like, you know, they they lost their job and like 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 this was a common thing in a couple chapters of like your studio is getting closed, but you're getting poached by another studio within the same parent company or whatever. So you know, and you know, maybe you and 10 other people know, and none of your coworkers know. People that you might have been working with for five, oh, 10 years, and you know that their whole lives are about to get ruined and uprooted. And you can't say a word, presumably, or you won't get Well, the and the job. fucked up thing was that it wasn't even the job. It was that most of the time, if they talked, they would, they would r- run the risk of everybody in the company losing their severance. For breaking the NDA. So like not only do you have to keep this horrible secret from your friend. If you tell them and someone finds out that they know they could lose their their payout. They could lose their benefits that they might need to survive until they get their next job. So it's not even just like, a, oh, I've got to watch out for my own thing. It's like if I if I am honest, if I am true to my morals right now, I could fuck over the person I'm trying to help. It's awful. It's awful. And, and yeah, I don't know, man. Like it's, it's really, it's really cool how the chapters build on themselves. Like there's, there's a big, there's a chapter that's all about, um, Bioshock infinite and irrational games and, and that whole thing. And then there's like the next three or four chapters are all about studios that spun out from irrational going down. And, like, it's cool to see, like, characters develop and see someone who it's, like, you know, oh, like, the chapter after that one, it follows this artist who her career started before that, and then she was at Irrational, and then it follows her post that, and then you see how things spin out from there, and it's it, it's really cool how much of, a, of an actual narrative this has for something that is actually based on real people's, event, like, lives, you know, and their experiences. Um, and... I think the big difference that I noticed in this one is not only that, the fact that like the chapters all kind of rhyme, like it feels more interrelated than Blood, Sweat, and Pixels did. Um, it also, it's it's harder to read and not in a like, it's not well written or anything like like I, I literally can't put it down like it's it's very much how I was with Blood, Sweat and Pixels. It reminds me of like a good video game where like I'm thinking about it when I'm not reading it. I'm like, you know, I've like not played as much of Pokemon Snap as I could because I wanted to read more of the book. Um, but I I found Blood, Sweat and Pixels to be mostly uplifting. 
like more of the chapters. Yeah, there, I mean, there were some chapters where it was like, you know, the Star Wars, right. one, for example. And it's just like, oh, and, and those were sad. Don't get me wrong. But like this chapter is like almost every chapter is about like failure and ruin yeah. and like. Well, yeah, because it's about the closure of right. studios, which obviously is, is heartbreaking. I, I, I'm, I can't wait to read it. And I'm curious if some of the studios that are, are in there, like some of my favorites have closed. Are they included? I mean, what Eddie Road Dog on Discord um, said, like, out of the studios that were discussed in the book, which one frustrated you the most? Was there one in there that that really resonated with you? As like, oh, this was a beloved studio of mine, and it closed because of you know, I don't know, mismanagement or whatever. yeah. Um, I think there were there are two cases that I think were were particularly egregious. Um. I mean, honestly, a lot of them, though. Like, the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm, oh, that one was really bad, that one was really bad. Um, but I think the worst one is probably Irrational Games, which, if you don't recognize my name, is the studio behind Bioshock. So, bit of a history lesson for you, if you don't remember. The the narrative of, of Irrational Games, right, is Bioshock, they have a kind of a... a intermediary period where they're working on a few projects you can read all about in the book um they come back for infinite infinite was an extremely tortured development cycle and ken levine had a miserable time with it and when when that was over that way if you'll recall right irrational closes down uh ken levine started his new studio within 2k it's like a more entrepreneurial subsidiary rather than irrational which was like more it was like underneath um 2k and i'm sorry what i meant was that irrational was a 2k studio and ken had trouble with the brass he didn't get along with the president of 2k so his new studio he he reports directly to take two which is the parent company and that's actually the same um uh, uh agreement that they have with rockstar where rockstar operates independently under the banner of take two so that's how Ken's new studio works, right? And what happened was he he decided during the the development of of uh, Infinite as it was winding down that he didn't want to do AAA anymore. He wanted a smaller studio. Irrational was over two hundred people at that time, and he like didn't know everybody's name, and he wanted to get back to the days of like having a smaller group of collaborators and being able to be a little bit more um, agile and whatever, which is ironic because they still haven't put anything out. We don't even haven't seen or heard of the game and it's been in development for like eight years. But anyway, uh, the fallout of that, and this is uh, the impression I got from the book anyway, was that this wasn't Ken's intention. Uh, 2K just shut down Irrational rather than replace him because they saw it as the Ken Levine studio, not Irrational. And they similarly did a same the same thing to like 2K Marin, which was the studio that did Bioshock 2, where like they basically just ended up putting both of those studios in like bad positions and then gutting them and closing them down, even though they had huge staffs of really talented people that had made literally some of the best games of all time, award-winning games, and they're like, oh, well, without Ken, you're nothing. And that was insane. They obviously could have put a new creative director at the head and continued to make great yeah, games course. easily. And it's it's frustrating because now they're trying to revive Bioshock, 
with a new studio and some of these people are on this team and everything. It's like, it never had to go away. You, you know, it could and like, I'm glad it did ultimately with Bioshock, but like Irrational and 2K Marin, like those are great studios that could have done anything else. They could have worked on a new IP, like whatever. Um, and to gut them. And that came just from like personal problems with the management. And it was just a case of, we don't want. It literally came down to one man's decision. Ken being like, I don't want to do irrational anymore. So they fucking shut the whole studio down. It's ridiculous. Um, so that, that one really, really bothered me. And, um, one that was touched on in the first book, uh, 38 studios, which was the one that Kurt Schilling built and like fuck Kurt Schilling for what it's worth. He's like a right wing asshole. But in the, uh, the book, they talk about the, the difference in culture that he was trying to build at 38. And like, again, for all the things that I disagree with him personally or politically or whatever, right. He seems like a douche. Um, the, 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 the studio and, and what they were trying to do for their developers, his whole mentality, right. Was that, when I was a baseball player, I was a star and I was treated like a star. The way you get the best talent is you treat them like the best talent. So they had better salaries than almost any other studios in the industry. They had all these insane perks. Like they got gym memberships. The, he, everybody got a computer. He paid for them to relocate from Massachusetts or to Massachusetts and then to Rhode Island and like all this stuff they were like bought that if anybody bought a house in Massachusetts the company bought the house from them and was going to take on the mortgage and all this stuff and th- it was like this very like forward thinking we're going to treat these video game developers like the all-stars that they are and that went really well for those people they most of those people said it was the best job they ever had they were really taken care of or whatever until it went belly up and there's a lot of reasons that played into that both from you know, and it depends on who you ask, but Schilling's ineptitude and inexperience, but also uh, a conflict with the the governor of Rhode Island that ended up inheriting the deal that he had made with the previous governor. It's like fucking crazy. Like, it's a really fascinating story. And the reason it's such a bummer is because A, by all accounts, the game they were working on was actually pretty good. But B, more that if that studio had succeeded imagine what it could have meant for the culture that would have been like the standard it would have been wow this is what they can output and imagine what it would have been like i mean that's crazy for like a company to just buy your house off and you just say you can move to their new headquarters and i mean it's the thing is like when you read about this book it's like oh my god every fucking company should do a relocation program they're expecting you to relocate your whole life and like yeah like that should be standard but it isn't because Mm-hmm. The Bobby Codex of the world need to take home $200 million bonuses. They can't afford to pay people what they're worth. Um, so, yeah. And then the the chapter about Visceral was rough, too. Um, uh, I can imagine. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I could literally keep... They're all sad. Every studio closure is sad. Um, but, yeah... I'm glad to hear that there's some differences. Because Blood, Sweat, and Pixels very much was like little you know single chapters these like vignettes into yeah. how these developers and how these games were made my favorite one in that book by far was the stardew valley one and and just hearing how how he struggled with oh i just I, i'm burnt out i can't find the way to work today but you know the guilt of of his girlfriend going to work and him staying at home and just playing video games so much so that he pretended to be working when she came home it's like little things like that that 
yeah, it's like a one-liner. It's like a one-paragraph thing, but it really sums up exactly what the situation was at the time. And I know Jason's very talented at doing that. And and I can only imagine with this cohesive narrative going all the way through and returning characters. I know they're real people, but it does definitely sound like they're they're kind of characters in this story that's probably strange. And it fiction. gives it gives a similar vibe to um the whole uh like. Have you read Console Wars by Blake Harris? I'm in the middle of it. You know how like Tom Kalinske is like a character in that book? Like it's mm-hmm. like that kind of, um, which I like. Uh, and that very much is more of a story than anything that I read in, in Blood, Swans Pixels was. And I'd imagine this maybe toes the line a little bit closer to being a story, but still has those like interviews and like It's, it's like very that, much that, a, a that synthesis of those two kinds of concepts, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that was really cool, there's like lots of little like tidbits. <clears throat> like uh, if if you read Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, you'll remember, right? Like Jason um, did that thing with uh, uh, with his his um, what's the word I'm looking for? Where you do the subscript and then you you have the notes, footnotes. Oh, the yeah, footnotes. Yeah. He he will put these really interesting tidbits in the footnotes or like good jokes in the footnotes that like don't really matter to the story but are interesting. Like there was this one where he talked about he like it gives you the entire like brief history of Sim Golf. And it was like the way that it <laughs> happened was that um uh uh Sid Meier had been trying to make a game about dinosaurs for like years and none of the prototypes came together. He just couldn't get it right, and he got so frustrated that he took like a two week hiatus or whatever, and he comes back and he's like, This is our next project. Bam, and it's just Sim Golf, and they made Sim Golf. <laughs> like that's the story of how it came together. Uh, wow. So there's like lots of okay. I'm very excited to hear uh, read the the bits about Sid Meier. Like I, I admire his work and his legacy in the industry. It's just you know it yeah. So there's there's lots of cool little things like that um, that I liked a lot, and y- you you learn a lot about the ins and outs and some of the little stuff that doesn't really get talked about as much, you know. Um, so I really I really it's appreciate it for that. Uh, it, it's a great book. It's really been a great read. I'm I'm enjoying it a lot, and I think. Um, if you are a fan of Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, it's it's a must read. And if you haven't read Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, I recommend both of them quite highly. And it's out next Tuesday on the eleventh sure of May, is. right? Yeah, coming up pretty soon. Um, so I will have uh my full review available uh over on the YouTube channel. So, um, keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, and yeah, man, I highly recommend it. I think um, there is a problem, I think, uh, in games, in in being a fan of games, where there are a lot of people, um, and I've, I've been guilty of this myself, who are fans of video games and think they know a lot more about video games than they actually know about video games. And I think everyone's scary of that. And even of, even if it's not video games as a medium, like say it's movies or right. TV shows or anything, you know, comic books, any kind of form of entertainment. I think people think they know more than they actually do of how the industry works. And to get this like little snapshot, drawing back the curtains for a little bit and seeing behind the scenes, it's sometimes great. And you get this insight in the places like the Sim Golf. And sometimes it's horrifying and you see just how terrible the industry really is. But sometimes. I think that's important. Because when you, when you look at video games, the thing I 
the thing I am most frustrated by about video games without fail are fans of video games. Um, and for those of you listening, right, I don't think it's a big problem in our community. I think we've done a pretty good job of weeding out assholes. Um, but every time a video game comes out, death threats and the cyberpunks of the world you know the hype around that and the fact that people couldn't accept the reviews and scores yeah. that come out before they've even played the game and it's it's things like that or the people who think you have to park your you have to camp in the playstation court or the well, xbox and the people things. that harass developers right where it's like oh like your game's broken or this isn't done or well this doesn't have enough content or this or that or whatever right like i'll say this you probably don't know fucking anything about how much it takes to make a video game and how much personal sacrifice it takes to make a video game and to make games for a living. And like the the thing that I've I've definitely had cemented for me more than anything else reading this article or um, this article this book is that nobody nobody gets into video games for the money. Because most people do not make good money making video games, right? And and that's the other thing, right? So many motherfuckers, oh, oh, they get paid a hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah, well, if you live in San Francisco, that's nothing, um, and that's easy. Oh, a hundred percent. And like and like, you could work for the big players, Google, Microsoft, Facebook. You could work for them and make shit loads more as a software exactly. engineer. Than if you make exactly. video games and they choose to make video games because they love the art form and this is what they want to do with them. Exactly. Lives. Yep. And that is something that was not ever lost on me. Um, I, I'd like to think I've always had a healthy respect for developers. I, and, you know, I've, I know I've said some untoward things about, you know, platinum or whatever. Like, I, it's all in good fun, right? I don't, I, like, you know, I don't <laughs> mean to say anything that's actually mean. Um, but I think that there are so many people that do do that, who do intend to be mean, who do intend to attack, uh, developers and, and act that like they're lazy or they're greedy or, or, or whatever, right? They're only in it for the money, whatever. And it, it, that's just not true. And it bums me out that so many people that claim to love video games so much seem to have so much vitriol for the people that actually make the damn things. Um, but I think a lot of that comes from ignorance and it comes from not knowing, not understanding. And some people don't care to know. And for, to those people, I say, go fuck yourself. But if you're like me or like a lot of enthusiasts where, uh, you think you have an idea of how things work and, and you want to be able to speak about it with more authority or with more empathy, uh, I think that these books, both of them are an incredible, uh, collection to that end because I know that walking away from both of these experiences I understand what it takes to 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 get a game made so much better than I did before and um, I'm not certainly not the first one to say this but I think my biggest takeaway from both of these books is that the fact that any video game gets made is a miracle uh, and it is no small miracle and it takes the collaboration of a lot of really talented people or the fucking blood sweat and tears of a very small group of people um and and i think that you know those sacrifices and the effort that goes into that is is deserving of respect um even if you don't care for the product even if you don't like the people um 
we should treat each other with a little bit more respect. And, you know, if you, if you claim to love video games and care about this industry, they don't happen without the people behind the computers, many of whom you will never learn the names of. They won't have a million Twitter followers. They won't become celebrities like Ken Levine. Um, they'll, they'll work in obscurity. They'll work and toil in obscurity to make something beautiful that you uh, enjoyed. So um, I think that these books are really important for that. To, to really show the human side of of the art that you love so much because we're so focused on brands with video games because so many people make them, you know? And that's fine, right? We all, I love Nintendo as much as you do. Um, well, I know we've spoken about it before. It's people seem to forget that it's not studios that make games. It's, it's the people at the studios. And those, and those people may not be there anymore. You know, you might love Bioware games, but we all know that Casey Hudson's not there anymore, and the people that made those original games probably aren't. At least there not anymore. all of them. And and yeah, the legacy continues with that studio. But you have to remember that it is the people that were there that made that, and not just because it has the name on the door. Right, and that a lot of them worked fourteen, sixteen hour days, missed being with their kids. You know, made uh, half of what they could have at a Silicon Valley startup. Like all of those things, they made that sacrifice for art. Um, so I, I want to put proper respect on that. And I think that that's really what these books are about is, is talking about, um, the human cost of the art that we all, the art form, the medium that we all love so much. Um, so I, I think it's required reading. I really do. So, uh, check it out. May 11th press reset. Um, the, Road to Ruin and Recovery, That's I forget the subtitle, but Press Reset, Jason Stryer. Uh, it's available right now. And I know if you're in the U.S. and you pre-order uh, the book, you can get access to the first chapter. And the first chapter is one of the best ones. Uh, so check it out. Uh, I think it's well worth your time. And Blood, Sweat, and Pixels is on sale for like $2, like all the fucking time. So oh, yeah, pick that book time. up. That, game, that book is is so cheap. You should definitely read it. And even and some of those chapters in Blood, Sweat, and Pixels are available on Kotaku's website. So if you want a taste of it beforehand, go search for Jason over on Kotaku.com. You'll be able to find some. And of I will there. say, uh, if you want to read pre- Press Reset first, you can. But I do think that your reading of Press Reset will be uh, increased by reading Blood, Sweat, and Pixels first. Because a lot of the games that are talked about in that book come up here um, to talk about the studios themselves. So... Uh, I know that I felt like there was a lot of context um, that I benefited from with Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. However, Jason does a really good job of writing this for somebody who doesn't even, like, if you don't play video games, you can read this book. He contextualizes words like AAA and, you know, like, thing. I mean, that's his job. He works for right. Bloomberg. He makes video games. He talks about video games for business Yeah, so it's, it's totally accessible, even if you're not as uh, inundated as, as we are. And I know that's something that people in the community like will talk about, where it's like, oh, like I listen to your show because I don't follow the industry as close as you guys do. That's no problem. You will be able to get what I got out of this book, I think, even if you have a, f- a fraction of a fraction of, of the uh, knowledge that I've worked to acu- accumulate. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, check them out and and again uh, huge huge thank you to Jason and Grand Rapids Publishing uh, for giving me access to the book early Um, I know that we're not the biggest channel or podcast or whatever in the world and you know um, it would have been easy to not give it to me so I I really do appreciate the access Um, big fan of the work and and I I feel privileged to be able to uh, have gotten to read it early and and evangelize it to all of you Um, 
yeah, so check it out. It's good shit. All right, so uh, hell of an episode, Steve. Yeah, it's a beefy one. Uh, thank you guys for joining us here on another episode of the Podcast. Uh, I I had a great time today. Really good episode. Lots of great news. I uh, hope you all feel the same. And if you do, and you don't already, make sure you head over to Patreon and just a buck you can get after dark. Uh, where Steve and I had a you know I'll say this. It was a $2 value episode of After Dark that you can get for just a buck. So we're, we're hitting you on all cylinders this week with the A-tier content. So I hope you'll check it out. Make sure you come uh, this Thursday to come tune in and watch our Mario Party stream with uh, Chewy Plays and Sierra Plus Ultra. It's going to be a good time. Uh, come, come join the Discord right into the show for next week. Uh, and keep your eyes peeled for my full review of Press Reset uh, on May 11th. Uh, until then, I've been Pete. He's been Steve. We've been the Podcast. We'll catch you next week.